Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. Welcome to this episode of the American Idea podcast. Uh, delighted that you could join us today. We're going to be talking with my old friend, uh, Professor Chris Burkett, on George Washington's farewell address. Chris, glad to have you back again. Chris is a um, professor of political science at Ashland University. He's also been involved with the Ashbrook Center for a number of years. He's the director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program, which is our honors program for undergraduate students in history, politics, and political economy. Uh, you've been around for a long time. It's been a while. Uh, I think this is 17 years. 17 years. I, but I was here four years before that as an undergrad student. We don't count those. That's right. And you were an art major, so we don't That's count right. that so either. Just, yeah, we'll just <laughs> keep that hidden. Yeah, bury that past. So. Um, we're talking today about Washington's farewell address. Um, I think a lot of people have probably, everybody's heard of George Washington, of course. A lot of people have probably heard of this something like this farewell address, and they're used to presidents sort of doing these things. But this document itself, um, why is it important? It's so important, in fact, that you've included it in your edited volume that Ashbrook puts out, 50 core American documents. You're saying it's one of the core documents that every American, whether a student, teacher, or a citizen, should know. Why is this document so important? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. It's great to be back having another conversation with you. Um, it's, uh, it's important because I think of the timing when it's written. The United States is still very young, uh, relatively speaking, right? It's only been 15 years, maybe um, going on 20 years. Right. Maybe so, 20 years. Because the farewell uh, address is given in, what, September of 1796? 1796, so 20 years Okay. Um, since the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution has only been in practice going on eight years, right? And, uh, and we're still sort of um, new as a nation, um, working some things out. So the timing of uh, this address is critical because of the kind of advice that Washington gives as mm. he's leaving office. Uh, advice to Americans um, to, uh, to unite as Americans and remain united as Americans, and also to remain dedicated to the principles upon which the country was founded and for which the, the revolution uh, took place. Right. So you've got a new country, in a way, experiencing growing pains, right? right. It's, right. It's, yeah. it's underway. It's looking westward, for example. There's going to be westward expansion. Everybody knows that. We've right. already begun into Kentucky and Tennessee by this time, right, by 1796. Yes. So uh, Ohio is going to be next not too many years later. So everybody knows the country is going to expand, go west, get bigger. We've got growing pains. You know, when I look at this document, I think to myself, um, it seems like it's Washington telling us how to maintain a republic. And to my mind, that strikes me as something of vital importance because it's not just a theoretical treatise. It's from a guy who has actually lived this thing called being the first president of the new American Republic. That's a great way to think of it. This is the, um, in some ways, reflects the accumulated wisdom, political wisdom, if you will, of George Washington, who over the course of 40 years, gave most of those years to, in service to his country, mm -hmm. uh, you know, serving as uh, commander-in-chief of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, 
Then he was uh, president of the Constitutional Convention and then called back into public service once again as president. So over the course of 40 years, Washington has has uh, has learned some things mm-hmm. uh, from experience that he is now passing on to Americans to make them aware of um, in terms of, for example, things that they should be watching out for, the potential pitfalls that they might experience as they as they grow, as you were saying, and, and, uh, and expand westward. Um, it's also, um, it's not just uh, the accumulated experience of wisdom, though. It's also, I think, reflective of the fact that Washington has remained dedicated, consistently dedicated to certain ideas over that 40-year period. Uh-huh. And the, um, a lot of the language, a lot of the ideas in the farewell address are, uh, are things that Washington was dedicated to from the very beginning of his political career. Yeah. Uh, Republican government, self-government, uh, working towards creating a kind of union of the American So he's mind. not giving us new ideas here. He's restating things that he's been thinking about and experiencing for a long time. In many and, ways, And wants true, to yeah. give this advice. How, but help me understand a little bit more of the historical background of this. Because we think of farewell addresses now as president gets on TV, about to leave office, sits behind a desk in the Oval Office, and s- speaks into the TV and talks to the nation, that right. sort of thing, or has a press conference. and give it. This farewell address was published, not spoken or delivered. That's correct. Yeah, it was published in the newspapers in September of 1796. Okay. And it was not exactly written just by Washington. It was not. In fact, um, at the end, toward the end of Washington's first term in office, he was hoping he could not run for a second term. James Madison actually helped him draft an initial farewell address. Okay, interesting. James Madison also then talked him out of, or, or talked him into running for a second term. Uh-huh. So that draft was never used in, in its entirety. Um, Washington, uh, at the end of his second term, was set on retiring to his farm at Mount Vernon. And he asked Alexander Hamilton to put his ideas into words. I, the ideas, the, the, the principles, the, the advice that Washington is giving in the address are his. Interesting. So, it, so it's really a combination. The writers are really a combination of George Washington's thoughts, but the words in part of James Madison and Alexander Hamilton putting those together to give expression to Washington's thoughts. That's, a, that's exactly the way I would yeah. put it. Yeah, and, and Washington acknowledged that he was not the the best educated. He didn't have the, the practice in writing the way that Madison yeah. and Hamilton did. So he trusted them, but he also approved, he had to approve it. These were, again, his ideas. He approved of the language. Yeah. And so there was nothing said that in the end, Washington would not have, would, you know, would, would not have agreed with. I see. So. Right. It's interesting to me too, because by 1796, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton are not getting along very well. That's, that's correct, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that Washington yeah. gives this speech and it's got words from both of them in it, yeah. pretty funny to me. Um, <laughs> but it's not something that was simply foreign to Washington in giving these kind of addresses, right? Because he no. had, as you said, been commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Had he given these kind of uh, farewell addresses to troops before? Yeah, that's a great question. So as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, he would um, frequently issue what were called uh, the general's orders or general orders. And um, you can go back and read a lot of these. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them do contain orders, like we're going to do this, and I ordered the soldiers to do this. But in almost every one of them, there were these moments where Washington adopted a kind of fatherly tone, hmm. maybe even brotherly tone uh, in a way, and trying to build camaraderie and, and union among the soldiers, reminding them of the principles that they were fighting for, uh, exhorting them to think of each other as, 
as, as fellow citizens of the United States, uh, united for a common cause. Right. And then when he stepped down from the army, he, 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 famous, he wrote his famous uh, farewell address to the army. Mm -hmm. So this, he does have a tradition of, of writing in this, in this way right. and offering similar kinds of advice. And if I can just say one of the things that Washington, uh, I think during the Revolutionary War that he thought he was trying to accomplish was not just to win the war, but in the process to build a kind of union among the hearts and minds of the soldiers uh, that yeah. formed his army. And that language makes its way into those orders and his farewell address to the army. So even, even during wartime, Washington is trying to sort of educate Americans or make these colonists into Americans. Yes. And you really do see that theme here in the farewell address as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things closest to Washington's heart that he hmm. hoped would, would, uh, would come out of the, of the founding and that we would really stri uh, strive to preserve. And he had a big hand in building that, that, that mind, if you want to call it that. So, so let's talk about the farewell address itself. Mm -hmm. it's, it's published, as you say, it's, it's started by Madison in 1792. It's finished by Hamilton in 1796. But as you say, it's Washington's thoughts. It's Washington's tr tradition to give this kind of address. It's published in 1796 in, in a newspaper, um, the Daily Advertiser. I believe so, yeah. Something like that, right? <laughs> the Advertiser, that's yeah. a funny thing. <laughs> but um, the speech itself, or the address itself, um, what's interesting for us when we think about the text in the way that it begins? Help us, help us understand that. Yeah, a, a great question. Um, even the beginning where he addresses friends and fellow citizens, I think is a significant, yeah. um, salutation, right? Because it really, even those few words are a reflection of Washington's, um, Republican mindset. Um, I mean, there's sort of the immediate purpose of the address that he lays out initially where he says, I'm telling you that I'm not running for a third term, right. which as we know becomes a, a precedent, yeah. uh, until the 19... Uh, 40s. Pretty much everything um, Washington does in office, right? He's conscious that he's setting a precedent. Yes. Whether, way, whether it's not running for a third term, whether it's giving a farewell address, which becomes, of course, a presidential tradition as well. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons when James Madison persuaded him to run uh, for president the first time, he said, we need somebody who will be setting the right kinds of precedents. So, so, so the address itself is another one of those precedents that Washington mm -hmm. sets. And then, uh, as you've mentioned earlier, future presidents will will sometimes imitate that. But, but I, I think um, in, in the sort of opening sections of the address, the thing that strikes me as most interesting is, is Washington's typical, um, um, it's, it's not self-doubt, but his acknowledgement that he's, he was never overconfident in his own abilities and, and never quite sure that he, he was the right man for the job. And, you know, the Washington is, um, um, has, there's a kind of humility to him, yeah. but it, it doesn't allow, it doesn't get in the way of his uh, ambition or his ability, uh, ability to, to do what needs to be done. But here's a kind of acknowledgement um, at the beginning, again, as he typically does, where he says, I'm, I'm not unconscious, uh, unconscious in the outset of the inferiority of my qualifications, and so on and so forth, in adopting the office. Or uh, in, in uh, running and for the office. And if I read that, I say, come on, George yeah, Washington, be serious. It's You're... untypical for politicians to do those things. Which is <laughs> it's why not the sort of thing weird. you hear from contemporary politicians. <laughs> yeah. In almost every sort of uh, private thing that Washington wrote where he's reflecting on these things, he does mix this kind of language of, like, I'm not quite sure it's humility, but a kind of 
he tries to give an honest appraisal of his own abilities. So uh-huh. he doesn't want to overdo it. He doesn't want to um, get carried away with with, um, with with sort of self-praise and, and these sorts of things. So, And he's doing that partly because he really does think that about himself. I do believe that, yeah. He really wasn't sure if he was as outstanding as he needed to be or as people thought he was. Yes. And also yeah. maybe because it lays the rhetorical groundwork for people then to just listen to what he has to say. This is not going to be praise of himself and all his myriad accomplishments of his administration. Right. This is going to be a serious person who's trying to deliver a serious message to his country. That, that's really well put. And then the only thing I'll add to that is, again, this language may be intentionally uh, meant to uh, point out a difference between the kinds of lang- the type of language you would hear from monarchs. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is course. not the type of language you hear from monarchs, right? And we know what Washington thinks about monarchy. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. And For example, doesn't so. Washington use the word I? Yeah. Yeah, the monarchs we. would always say we. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. We right. are the realm, yeah. 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 So, yeah. Okay. And again, the very beginning where he says that actually fellow citizens, that's uh, not the language of monarchies. So. Right. And that's the, and, and we're living in 1796 in a world and an age of monarchy. Exactly. Right. So Washington, not a king, but a fellow citizen aware of his own infirmities, but yet, yet in spite of that, or maybe because of that, wants to offer some advice to his countrymen. Right. The first bit of advice, it seems like it focuses on preserving unity. This seems to be a great theme for Washington here in 1796. And maybe not just in 1796, but throughout his entire career. Mm-hmm. What's Washington saying in this address about the importance of unity and, and how do we achieve it? Yeah, uh, that's a wonderful thought, wonderful question. And uh, as he gets into this argument, the first thing he says to the American people um, is, um, you know, we've done a great thing here. We've got a great thing. It can become a great thing, mm-hmm. this republic that we've established. And he wants to ask, what are the potential dangers, perhaps, right? What are the threats to that? What could cause us to lose this, this thing that we've started? And he begins by saying, first of all, don't, it's not a lack of love of liberty. <laughs> right? ah. you, uh, Americans love liberty. I'm not worried about that. The potential uh, that could, that could um, undermine this great work that we're doing is disunion, division, and disunion uh, from a number of causes. Um, disunion or dis, uh, division along sectional lines, north and south, right? Okay. Both seem have clearly developing interests that are not necessarily uh, the same or even in agreement with each other. Um, so so the initial uh, um, advice that Washington's given giving here again is um, think of yourselves as American citizens first. First. And not simply citizens of this state or this state or this state sort of loosely connected again we've we've got a constitution that actually according to the preamble has created a more perfect union and we need to start thinking of ourselves in those terms and what's that great line here in the farewell address where he talks about the uh, pride and our source of pride or patriotism should be from the name american yes yeah this is wonderful if i can i'll just read it this yeah is please it's just wonderful uh he says for this you have uh, every inducement of sympathy and interest Citizens by birth or choice, which is interesting, of a common country. That country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, 
must always exalt the just pride of patriotism, more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. What's he saying there? Think of yourselves as Americans first, I hmm. think. That's the real source of, uh, of, of, uh, of pride of who you are. You should really um, say that this is the most important thing. That this is, um, this thinking of ourselves as fellow citizens uniting with a kind of common American mind uh, is the yeah. thing that's going to allow us to do those things that we hope will happen in the future. Because this is, and this is from a guy who loved Mount Vernon, who was attached to the soil of Virginia, right? but does not think of himself first and foremost as a Virginian. Right. Right. Uh, he thinks of himself, I think even in his w last will and testament, he describes himself as George Washington, citizen of America. That's right. <laughs> That's yeah, right. as opposed yeah. to, so, you know, citizen of Virginia or resident thereof. Yeah. So the first way to preserve unity is to simply think of ourselves as Americans. Right. And if we think in those terms, then there's the possibility of real sort of civic friendship among those people from various states and sections of the country. So, so at the heart of it, there's a, you have to build this kind of friendship, which again reminds me of, of why he begins this address with the word friends. Yeah. And in fact, at one so. point, I think he says it in the beginning, we, we need to maintain not just union, political union, but I think he, the phrase he uses, brotherly affection. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Brotherly talk about affection. friendship. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, what unites us? What should unite us as friends? What, you know, there are a number of ways in which people can be friends, right? Right. Um, yeah, so how, that's, that's, that's the next question, right? He wants us to be friends as Americans, but what is, in his mind, going to keep us together? What's the, what's the cement of our friendship? Yeah, if you pick up where we left off in reading that same paragraph uh, where he was talking about thinking of yourself as, a, as an American, he goes on and he says, um, with slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. Hmm. You have in a common cause fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. So he wants to emphasize the things that we have in common rather than all the ways in which the people of the various right. states are different, right? And, and, and when he brings up the same religion, manners, and habits, I think there's some exaggeration there. Because there's actually a lot of diversity <laughs> right. in terms of uh, religions and manners and habits among the people of the states. But it's the political principles, I think, are the thing that Washington really believes can unite. Those are the things that can uh, unite American citizens, regardless of where they're from or what their religions are, or their, their habits and manners. So he's saying, don't forget about our revolutionary struggle together. Don't lose track of that. Reminds me a little bit of Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. Right, right, very much so. Where he talks about patriot graves, right? right. But this is still alive and fresh, and Washington is the commander of the Continental Army. It's alive in a re reality and a, not just a me distant memory for him. Don't forget our common struggle, revolutionary struggle, but don't forget the principles for which we struggled. Right. And on which we built this new constitution and this new republic. Right. Yeah, the principles are vitally important, and he makes several references to the principles as he goes through and he talks about the importance of preserving union, watching out for attempts at, at causing divisions, uh, political divisions, um, uh, calls for uh, devotion to, the, to the, not only the union, but the, the government of the union and the constitution that uh, perfects the union. 
Um, and he calls for, uh, uh, in the, there's a paragraph, oh, here it is. He says, toward the preservation of your government and the permanency of your present happy state, it is requisite not only that you steadily discountenance irregular oppositions to its acknowledged authority, but also that you resist with care the spirit of innovation upon its principles, however specious the pretext. And again, this is his, um, I think, way of saying that we're going to have political disagreements. Mm-hmm. Despite the disagreements, we must remain devoted, or at least at least uh, we must think that the principles upon which we, you know, established ourselves must be taken seriously. Yeah, must be looked to, must be preserved. And so, what we really need to watch out for is um, sort of people with ulterior motives that are trying to move us away from a dedication to these common political principles, right. political motives. So this this friendship that we've got as Americans, it's built on sharing these principles, what ha- what, what Jefferson called later the American mind, as you, the phrase you've used, that's, that exists in this place called America that now we're one political union. We've got a common constitution now with a real actual central government, not mm-hmm. the Articles of Confederation anymore. Washington's been the president of it for two terms now, so he's sort of got that operation going. We've got this thing that we've never had before, and that really has never existed in history before. This common principle built on the principles of the Declaration of Independence, this common country, united by an actual working government with a real written constitution. It's an amazing accomplishment. Much of the rest of the address is what dangers threaten to break up this and ruin this great accomplishment. What are some of those dangers yeah. that he points us to? Yeah, wonderful point. Um, as he um, goes on and um, argues for the preservation of union and dedication to union, as you were saying, uh, one of the first dangers that he points out is what he calls the spirit of party, hmm. uh, which he connects to faction and the dangers of faction. Uh, James Madison is most famous for writing about the dangers of faction, but right. Washington was not unaware of the of those of of the the tendencies of factions to be um, divisive. Yeah, what's he mean here by the spirit of party and faction? Because when we think of the we think of party, obviously, uh, we think of political parties like the Federalist Party or the Democratic Republican Party. Is he talking about organized political parties when he says the spirit of party, or is he talking about something else? Yeah, I don't know that he's. I don't think he's saying avoid parties simply. I think Washington was realistic enough to know that we're going to have parties. He even acknowledges this in the address when he says this is, people, political societies have parties because it's just the way human beings are. There's something about human beings that means there are going to be parties. They just right? naturally form different naturally groups. Form, exactly. Okay. Then it's, what does he mean by the spirit of the party? the spirit of party, which can become factious. That is... Um, dangerous in the sense that it, it's it's more divisive um it, it tends to divide that common dedication that uh, that americans ought to have toward principles um he says um uh, among the the sort of what he calls baneful effects of the spirit of party um he describes as uh, a spirit of revenge mm. um which can lead to a more formal and permanent kind of despotism um, the spirit of party, if if you get carried away by it, can lead you to, um, again, seek revenge. It can lead to disorders and miseries. Um, so almost as though you become attached to your group, your faction, your political party, and say, who am I? 
I'm a Federalist. I'm not an American. I'm a yes. Federalist. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And those Jeffersonian Republicans are evildoers because they're not Federalists, because right. they disagree with us on policy. Right. <laughs> and he's saying, no, 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 no. We're all Americans here. Right. But this, and, and so we can be belong to different parties because we have different opinions about policy and matters of politics. Right. But we're still Americans together here. Yes. And the spirit of party says, no, we're not. We're Federalists first. Right. We're Democratic Republicans first. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, it tends to undermine, again, that common dedication that we can, uh, that we have toward, toward common principles. And it, and it means uh, once we get carried away by the spirit of party and we become factious in the sense that you were describing it. And really in it, the it, sense it, that it Madison describes it in Federalist number 10, right? Which, which yeah. we've done, which we've talked about uh, with Professor Greg McBrayer. We were talking about the idea of faction being a group that puts its interests ahead of other people's rights or even the good of the country. Exactly. And it also means, as you were describing it, 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 it undermines the possibility of this friendship that Washington was yeah. urging, right? Yeah. You can't be friends if you think, well, those Federalists are, are, are evil or, uh, or out to you know, ruin the Republic or something like that. You yeah. cannot be friends. Right. Um, and without that friendship, you lose the foundation, the real foundation of, of, of unity. So Washington unity. is saying, even as political parties are forming here in the 1790s, and that's a reality, don't let the spirit of party yeah, divide the country. He says it's not to be encouraged. <laughs> not to be encouraged. Right. <laughs> so. He was perhaps a reluctant Federalist. Yes. <laughs> what's, what's another threat? The first one here that he mentions is the spirit of party. Let's, let's keep that under the umbrella of American. We're all Americans here. We're all fellow citizens, regardless right. of our political party. What's, what's another threat? Yeah, well... As you were saying earlier, Washington is uh, reminding Americans that they should be proud of the fact that they finally got a working constitution, a government of the union, and all of these sorts of things. But he also reminds us that that alone is not enough. What's also required is a certain character on the part of the American people. And he says, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Hmm. In vain would that man claim the, tri the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. So uh, what's also required to make this republic work, I think, in the long term, or at least live up to its fullest potential in terms of providing the kind of happiness and prosperity that Washington hopes will, 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 will occur, is a certain kind of uh, virtue on the part of American citizens and morality. Uh -huh. And he even goes on, um, right, to talk about the importance of religion in society. Yeah. So, so if we're going to maintain a successful republic, he's told us, if we're going to maintain this experiment in self-government, this republic, we've got to remain united. We've got to resist the spirit of party. We've got to resist sectionalism. And think of ourselves as Northerners or Southerners and not Americans. We got to resist that. We also need to be virtuous, and we can't forget the importance of religion in that. Right. Um, why is religion so important? And he singles it out here. He's not arguing, is he, for a state church? He's not. He actually says, if you read his language carefully, what he actually says is, "Let us, with caution, indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion." So. He's acknowledging, again, the idea of religious liberty. He is not in any way trying to tell people or force people that they must be religious or be of a certain kind of religious um, persuasion or have certain religious beliefs. 
But he is um, emphasizing the fact that religion is a great source of morality for a great number of people. Mm -hmm. And um, this is especially important in Republican government or popular government, as he calls it, because um, because morality is important. You must have mores. You must have uh, a sense of uh, uh, you know moral, a kind of moral code that we must live by, if you will. Right. It's not quite the right way right. to put it. But republics, the, because the republics leave people free that's exactly, to govern themselves. It's not an aristocracy or a monarchy where these things are all sort of the rules of society, the moral rules of society are dictated from the top down. In right. a free society where people are left free to think for themselves largely and, and order their own actions and decide how they're going to live, you still need, according to Washington, some kind of morality. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, um, religion is a great source of morality for a, for a, a great number of people. So beware so. of any movements or ideas or, or arguments that would say, we can have a successful republic by getting rid of religion. Right. That's exactly what he says. Uh, the mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish uh, religion and morality. A mm. volume could not trace all their connection with private and public felicity. So, again, be very careful at attempts to undermine the importance of, of religion um, uh, on morality and morality in general in society. So, so maintain our identity as Americans, maintain our fidelity to the Constitution, maintain our respect for religion as part of this. These are all domestic affairs. Right. What about this young American nation's place in the world? And this is maybe the, the, the part of the farewell address for which Washington is most famous right. and has often been most cited. Because he's, even though we're far away from Europe, um, we're not going to stay off the world stage forever. And we've had to negotiate and navigate this fight between the British and the French. And Washington himself had to do it in the 1790s as president. So he's aware that America is going to be involved on the world stage somehow. What does he say about how to maintain a republic by the way you conduct your foreign affairs? Yeah, wonderful question again. And uh, this is, again, the sort of the final broad thing that we need to be careful about with regard to what's necessary to preserve the Union. This would lead to destruction of the Union from outside of the United States, for example, right? Uh -huh. If we don't conduct foreign affairs properly and carefully. The first advice he gives on this is observe good faith and justice toward all nations. So, sort of typical thing you would expect from Washington, right? Tell the truth, be honest, be uh -huh. just. Uh -huh. um, but then he also gives some very um, shrewd advice, if you will, about how to how to deal with nations and what to expect from them. Um, so observe good faith and justice toward all, all nations, cultivate peace and harmony with all. But um, the great danger to the United States, Washington recognized, and again, he'd learned this from his own experience during the Revolutionary War, was that these, these great powers, these European nations, right, uh, have a tendency to want to control the United States. The United States may be independent, technically. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they can't still fall under the influence of Great Britain or France or some other strong European nation. Right. Those nations are going to want to use the United States like a puppet, right? Yes. And play them to their advantage. And so what Washington calls for is, uh, is for the United States to be very careful not to get uh, sort of caught off guard. First of all, he says, don't get uh, sort of passionately attached to one nation or another. As you okay. know, in the 1790s, Americans were deeply divided between 
whether our attachments should lie with Great Britain or France. Right. Washington says, don't get attached to either. Uh-huh. <laughs> don't get attached <laughs> to any foreign nation. Um, because once that happens, then, you know, uh, uh, we become in a way, he says, a slave to the will of that other nation. Um, in other words, they start telling us what to do and we lose independence. Uh-huh. So we have to be careful about not falling into that trap. But the other thing we can do, he says, he calls this the great rule of conduct in foreign relations is not uh, tie ourselves up in permanent alliances or permanent treaties with other nations. Um, steer clear of permanent political connection, he says, with other nations. All right. And, um, you know, if we need temporary alliances, if we find ourselves in trouble and we need the help of another nation, we can form a temporary alliance. But the problem with signing a long-term permanent treaty with another nation is it's a promise. Yeah. And promises are expected to be kept. Right. But you may find yourself in a position not to be able to keep that promise. So don't build your foreign policy, your connections with other nations based on passion or promise. Exactly. Because, uh, first of all, you may not be able to keep those promises. And as we know, George Washington didn't like breaking promises. Right. Uh, but secondly, when you make those kinds of... Uh, long-term treaties, you again are at the mercy in many ways at, the, at these other nations telling you what to do and what not to do. Washington learned this firsthand during the Revolutionary War. He was very skeptical of the treaty with France, which, which the United States signed, um, uh, did sign, right? Uh, and yeah. France, of course, did help us. But Washington was concerned and he warned people that there will be strings attached. And it turns out there were uh-huh. strings attached. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> if the French helped so, us, they're going to want our help exactly. sometime. Exactly. So he even says... Um, in the um, in the farewell address, uh, there can be no greater error than to expect or calculate upon real favors from nation to nation. That is, they're going to always ask for you know something in return, and you have to be careful about what they might ask for. Tis folly, he says. And this is the line I was actually looking for. Tis folly in one nation to look for disinterested favors from another, that it must pay with a portion of its independence for whatever it may accept under that character. A hard-headed, clear-sighted call it realistic view of the world and of how nations act toward us has got to be the basis of our foreign policy. I think that's what he's arguing. Yes. Some people have said this is advice that future Americans and presidents have looked at and said, this is a blueprint for what people have called isolationism. Is this isolationism or does he still want America to, to interact with other nations around the world? Yeah, It's not isolationism. Um, in laying out the great rule of conduct, which we mentioned earlier, he says, in extending our commercial relations with other nations, we should have with them as little political connection. So we're not cutting ourselves off from the world. We're going to maintain diplomatic relations. We're going to, we're going to build economic ties. We're going to interact with the world. What he means is don't make political treaties, binding treaties that, that say, you know, uh, we must come to the, the military assistance of another nation or something like that. So what Washington preferred, uh, the term Washington preferred was neutrality. What we want to do is have the ability through our independence to be neutral when we want to be neutral. When we don't want to be neutral, it should be our choice whether or not to get involved in a, in a war or, or some sort of political disagreement. So whether it's a neutrality with respect to other nations or whether it's a, some kind of partnership or agreement with another nation, it's always to serve the principle of American independence, both in its own independence over itself, but independence in its... Um, the way it can maneuver in the world with other countries. Yes. Yeah, so we have to be very careful um, not to get caught up again and be uh, sort of come under the thumb of these great European powers. We have to be prepared to defend ourselves, but 
This is perhaps my favorite line, actually, in this whole part of the farewell address. When Washington says, what we want is to, again, be able to choose neutrality when we want to be neutral in these things. And, um, and arrive at the time, if we do these things carefully, we may arrive at the time when we may choose peace or war as our interest, guided by justice, shall counsel. Uh-huh. So we decide, according to our considerations of what's necessary for our independence, but also in light of considerations of justice. Yeah when to go to war and when not to get involved in wars. We that should, should all, be our decision. So we should always guide our foreign policy by what's right and by what's in America's interest as an independent country. Yes, yes, right. All Fair right. way to put it. How have, I mean, there's so, it, this is such a rich address. It's amazing it was published in the newspapers for people to right. read. It's <laughs> tremendous. Yeah. Um, how has this address shaped American history? I know that's such a huge question, but... You know what? Give us give us one thing on that. What what effect has it had on the f- future course of America? Because Washington certainly hoped that it would. Yeah, I can tell you, and I, I know you know this as well. That um, when James Madison and uh, Thomas Jefferson were considering the curriculum at what would become the University of Virginia, they were talking about what text should we have students read? Fundamental core documents. Yeah, and this was one of them. Uh-huh. And though I think one of them, Madison or Jefferson, sort of disagreed with um, the, a particular here or there, which they thought was um, too Federalist in nature. <laughs> too Hamiltonian. Right, too yeah. Hamiltonian. <laughs> he said it, it contains these great principles, these great ideas, again, that all Americans ought to, ought to consider. Right. Um, so they recommended it for the curriculum at, at this university. Um, and uh, I'll also mention, by the way, that... Um, we we know that other presidents in the future will come along and imitate Washington at the end of their second term, and issue uh, something like this. Uh, in the during the Civil War, Congress, I think it was first the House of Representatives started reading this on Washington's birthday every year, hmm. and that tradition I think it was the House started in the House. The Senate then started doing it because they didn't want to be outdone by the House, and uh, that tradition hmm. continues to this day. At least the Senate continues. Well, that's to read amazing. It, so. So that Washington's advice to his country continues to be read by his countrymen. On his birthday. On his birthday. Right, in and, the capital. And what a fitting way for us, and a fitting thing for us to study, and a fitting way for us to conclude this, this episode. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time and, and your insights into this really fundamental American document. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of The American Idea, presented by the Ashbrook Center. You can find this episode and more of our resources for students, teachers, and citizens at our website, ashbrook.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe, like, rate, or review it. And of course, share it with your friends and family. From Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickinga. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook.